0: Well, I want to begin by a way, by by the way, how many of you were actually at the lecture last night? Okay, so a couple of you. I want to apologize. This lecture is not as fun. Uh, Last night I talked about Kanye, and um, uh, today I'm talking about someone uh, quite more level-headed and flat-footed, Carl F.H. Henry, uh, literally flat-footed. Carl Henry didn't make it into the military uh, because he had fallen arches, so they didn't think he would be a very good soldier. Um, But he was a a soldier uh, for for Jesus Christ, and it has been a, a labor of love for me personally over my career over the last few years to to do what um, uh, some thought several years ago was almost impossible, w- which was to get a new generation of young pastors and theologians interested in the work of, of Carl F.H. Henry. Uh, many moons ago, I was um, um, speaking to uh, um, a colleague at another institution and the name of, uh, it was brought up that they, the possibility of doing a lecture series on Carl Henry. And a very prominent evangelical scholar said in this gathering, Carl Henry, um, uh, we, don't, we don't need to go backwards. We need to move forwards. So uh, I, I think at that point I took it upon uh, myself at the very least to do what I could to to remind this generation of someone who was a giant uh, in the the world of setting the table for so much of what we have come to rely upon in the evangelical tradition. And today what I would like to do is is I would like to talk about um, an aspect of something that uh, meant quite a lot to Carl F.H. Henry And especially how he thought that that might be in service to theological education and to evangelism. And that is the importance of of philosophy. Um. From my perch now in New York City, I, uh, I definitely appreciate the life and legacy of Carl F. H. Henry. He was a New Yorker. He was born on the uh, on the Upper East Side. He went to PS uh, School, se- Public School 77, uh, on the Upper East Side. He was a newspaper man before the Lord uh, got a hold of him. He was a newspaper editor for two newspapers on on Long Island, and uh, I had the good fortune and privilege of getting to know Carl F.H. Henry in the last few years of of his life. I would make pilgrimages to Watertown, Wisconsin uh, to to see Carl and Helga Henry um, in their retirement home there. Appropriately, Carl's address in Watertown, Wisconsin was 1141 Huss Drive. And uh, there was definitely still that Swedish uh, and, and German Lutheran tradition there in, in Wisconsin. He moved there um, because Helga didn't want him to take so many speaking engagements. So she theorized that if she could get him about two hours away from the nearest major airport, uh, she, could, uh, she could spend some more time with him in their, in, their final, in their final years. I don't think it quite worked out uh, uh, that way. And um, there's many things I would say uh, uh, about Dr. Henry as a man, but I am very much of the opinion that the character makes the theologian. And um, I was speaking with Marvin Alasky after my book on Carl Henry came out, Recovering Classic Evangelicalism, and Marvin was going to run a review of it in in World, for which I was very grateful. And Marvin told me that um, Carl... Uh, as, as many of you know, was uh, for years a correspondent for World Magazine. And um, having had the, the distinguished uh, um, uh, legacy of being the first editor and along with Billy Graham being the founder of Christianity Today. And um, uh, Carl uh, would send articles into Marvin Alasky and in each envelope, with uh, his next article typed out on his faithful typewriter, um, which, was a, which was a little portable electric typewriter on which he wrote God, Revelation, and Authority. Um, I would actually like to have that typewriter. I'm not sure where, where it is. I, 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 um, maybe maybe it, uh, it's still preserved. But in each envelope, he would include a uh, self-addressed stamped postcard for Marvin to send back which said accept or reject. He never assumed that simply because he was Carl F.H. Henry that what he wrote would be good enough to be published in World Magazine. Now M- Marvin always said accept and, <laughs> and, and, and published it um, but he was, a very, he was a very modest man. Um, um, and in his, in his latter years, he was uh, dispirited at times at, at the future of where the, the evangelical movement was going. But I, here's what I am uh, I, uh, pretty sure would be the case. Carl Henry would be overjoyed to know about what's happening at Southeastern Seminary to see the level of scholarship that is taking place here. I've spoken to several PhD students since I have been here. Uh, and, and I can tell you from the position of having been the dean of the School of Theology at, uh, at Union University, the the, the level of, of uh, academic rigor and engagement and theological interest um, at Southeastern continues to grow and grow. And he would have rejoiced at knowing it, th- what, what's happening in the evangelical world despite all of our problems. Uh, but I think that if he were still around, he would still keep pressing us on a few things. And that's what I want to talk about today, which is uh, the, the fact that here is someone who, um, in my estimation, in my own personal life, uh, was one of the maybe top three or four personal evangelists I have ever met. He was someone that I never went anywhere with Carl that he did not he did not witness to a uh, to a waiter or a gas attendant or a student um, and uh, he was not too big for his britches. One of my favorite stories was when we brought him to Southern Seminary, he spoke at the PhD colloquium that I, I was in on contemporary theology. And we had just finished reading uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg's third volume of his systematic theology, which Carl had also read. And one of the PhD students said, what is the single greatest issue in contemporary theology? Now, Carl could have just, you know, held forth on, on all the, the, uh, the philosophical issues of the time. But he said, the greatest issue confronting modern theology is, have you met the resurrected Lord? <laughs> So I think he was, he was still trying to, I think he still thought some of these people that we were reading in this very seminar probably needed to have an encounter with, uh, with the risen Lord, and that was his biggest issue. And yet, here is someone who always flew under the banner of philosopher. Um, Here is someone who had a Ph.D. from Northern Seminary in systematic theology who went back to do a second Ph.D. at Boston University uh, where he wrote a a dissertation on the personal idealism of uh, Borden-Parker-Bowen and how that influenced Augustus Hopkins Strong. Um, He was uh, someone that really definitely cared about... uh, the, the ways in which the evangelical um, the evangelical scholarly community and church engaged at the very highest levels with the epistemological concerns of uh, of our age and um so that's part of the reason why I myself uh, went into uh, teaching philosophy before you know, I went off into the, the dark, dark world of, of academic administration, which, you know, what they say about college presidents, right? You know, the first year you stop writing, uh, the second year you stop researching The third year you stop reading and the fourth year you stop thinking altogether. So I think the fifth year you actually get a frontal lobotomy. They just schedule it in. Um, Fortunately, Carl never went down that dark road. He stayed uh, an active theologian throughout his life. But if you read his, his works, one of the things that he would constantly bring up is, are pastors and teachers of God's word reading at the highest levels of the ideas that grip the thoughts uh, of this generation? And, and if you know how culture is produced... It always begins with high culture, whether you read Peter Berger or whether you read Roger Scruton, they will always tell you that high culture starts with the intellectuals and the philosophers. And very often we are fighting a rear guard action because all we will talk about is politics and pop culture and low culture and not start at the top, which is where everything uh, starts out. Last night I said something that is, I think, now become a truism for us, but politics is downstream from high culture, uh, as, is, uh, as is pop culture. And uh, yet, even though we had uh, great figures like Carl Henry contending for the importance of philosophy for ministry, uh, we still find... Uh, this to be the case. Now, I'm going to step on some, some toes here, um, but conference after conference after conference, we go to uh, big national, thousands of people attending um, with um, uh, wonderful sections on Bible exposition and on um, uh, theological Accuracy and defending the faith, um, and relatively little attention given to the things that actually generate high culture and pop culture. Um, several years ago, um, I uh, was—I uh, got a call from a friend who had gone to one of these large, prominent uh conferences for pastors and one of the speakers i won't say who it was but if you do a little checking you might be able to figure this out um spent his whole talk to speaking to these thousands of pastors about the importance of hegelian philosophy and uh everybody was just like drooling out of the mouth by the end of it. I mean, this was not, you know, this wasn't rock'em, sock'em, you know, uh, uh, Wittenberg door kind of stuff. And um, people weren't following it. Uh, but I think had Carl Henry uh, been around, he would have been the one person standing and clapping and cheering and say, this is it, Right? Because when I look at the progress, when you look at the progressive left and you look at a YouTube channel like Democracy Now, okay, right now we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of young people that uh, are going to these Bernie Sanders, you know, um, rallies and uh, their media outlets are not the mainstream media, but it's it's Buzzfeed and Democracy Now. Uh, they're leaning in and listening very carefully to Noam Chomsky, right? They they know who Noam Chomsky is, right? Um, a couple of years ago, down in the financial district, right where Kings is, there was this little kerfuffle called Occupy Wall Street. And um, uh, the apoplectic Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek made an appearance at this uh, gathering and he stood up on a picnic table in Zuccotti Park and it looked like the Sermon on the Mount was taking place, all right? Žižek has produced several um, award-winning films, On uh, Hegelian philosophy and the importance of Lacan, and has written these magnum opuses. I went to the 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 opening of his last film in New York City, and uh, you you would have you would have thought it was the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who had just, and everybody in the crowd was under thirty years old, right? And our team. Doesn't really talk about that stuff that much, but I think a lot of this younger generation is uh, leaning into that, and I think that uh, I think that Carl Henry was, w- would be, even though he would celebrate so much of uh, what Carl Truman calls now the evangelical industrial complex. You know, I think you know Carl Henry would say, you know, in in general, really good stuff happening. And yet, at the level of what we do in terms of reaching this generation for Christ, we probably don't have the intellectual gravitas that we really need in order to make the case uh, all too often, and that we may be, you know, fighting battles that are from a bygone era. Just last night at dinner, so I was talking with, uh, with Mark uh, Liederbach and Ken Keithley at, at dinner. They were saying, you know, what do you see from the people that you talk to in, in New York City in terms of their questions about Christianity? And, and I said, you know, I think that there's this view uh, right now where uh, atheistic mater- people think that secular people are atheist materialists. Like if you read most of the apologetics literature, that that's the big problem. That's not what I see. They're not atheist materialists so much as they are um, neo-pagans they are very interested in magic and they're interested in all kinds of uh, mystical explanations for things and transcendental properties and they're they're reading um, they're, you know they're reading novels and magical realism and and um, uh, so that's the sort of Generation that uh, that that we're dealing with, and so um, when I think about the legacy of of Carl Henry, and I go back and look at what he was doing right from I'm in the South, I can use a Southern expression here from the get go. Um, thank you, and all God's people said, <laughs> "Did somebody say Akin?" Hey, um, uh, when I came to the King's College in New York City, uh, I got a, had a going away party thrown for me by my colleagues at Union University, and they gave me a framed copy of a May 9th, 1960 issue of Christianity Today. And the editorial, uh, the lead editorial from uh, Carl F. H. Henry um, was entitled Why We Need a Christian University in New York City. Now this was Carl Henry's great uh, unfulfilled ambition in life and Owen Strand has written a fantastic book on the attempt by Billy Graham and uh, Carl Henry and also Harold Ockengay their, their desires to, to be at the, sort, at the font of cultural influence um, and and as I actually looked at that issue of of Christianity today, um, it was it was fascinating to see how Henry framed um, the issue of why we need a Christian university in New York City. Um, and he talked about the the long slide of so many Christian liberal arts colleges and universities. into irrelevancy and um, he closes the article by saying um, that the founders of these schools had great vision and yet uh, the professors in these same schools quote when their classroom doors close to lecture they resurrect Hegel, Darwin, Dewey, Kant and Kierkegaard only to leave Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, unwanted and unrecognized. So he understood that the academy always will stay at the headwaters of culture philosophically, but very often will leave out uh, the gospel. And then when you look at the rest of that, that issue, the very first article uh, in Christianity Today was from Gordon Clark e- explaining the influence uh, that um, John Dewey and logical positivism were having in contemporary culture. The next article was from Dirk Yillema uh, f- from what is now Case Western University talking about the rise of the postmodern mind. Um, that was Christianity today in 1960. It was an intellectual and philosophical tour de force, you know, and um, it never made any money. So <laughs> that's <laughs> that's why it ch- that's why it changed. Um, but but Henry continued to pursue this dream. He started this organization called IFACS, and he was interested in integrative. Uh, debate and conversation around the the intersection of theology and science and uh, philosophy. As a matter of fact, in his bio for the book Horizons in Science, it said, um, Carl Henry is a scholar who maintains a keen interest in the reconciliation of theology, philosophy, and science. And in my own book, I talk about the game changer that was the 1948 publication of The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, which was really the shot across the bow that said to the whole post-World War II church in America that unless you start talking about economics and politics and the world of finance and uh, social issues if if you don't talk about that and all you talk about just is evangelism we will lose the opportunity to reach the world for Christ so uh, we all f- celebrate the importance of the uneasy conscience of uh modern fundamentalism but there was a previous book that was published before that <laughs> there was a there was a precursor to the uneasy conscience and it was called Remaking the Modern Mind, and in that book, Henry traced the whole history of Western philosophy uh, from the pre-Socratic philos- philosophers to Plato and Aristotle to Spinoza and Hume on the West thinking about the uniformity of nature and the possibility of theism, while juxtaposing these worldviews to Christian theism. He considered the impact of Kantian and Hegelian idealism in Western history alongside the re- readings in Nicholas Berdeyev and Reinhold Niebuhr and Etienne Gilson and Paul Tillich. He was relentless in talking about the, the, what was philosophically au courant at the time, Henri Berson and Samuel Alexander and the rise of process philosophy. And it's, it's impossible to think of the rise of work of later thinkers and scholars like Norm Geisler and Colin Brown and E.J. Carnell and Millard Erickson without that precursor of Henry contending for those kinds of things. And he says in Remaking the Modern Mind, here's a, here's a key quote in, uh, from, from earlier on, uh, I'm sorry, from the very final paragraph in this book. His his thesis is this the modern ideology needs to be remade that is admitted today by those who have shaped it as well as those who have opposed it but its effective remaking can be accomplished only only in a philosophic framework in which rebirth is something more than a change of human temperament in which indeed it is a divine reversal A work of regeneration. If the modern mind is not reborn, but merely exchanges one mood for another, we stand only a generation from the fruit of atheism, the pessimism of despair. Notice what he's saying. There is what we, the case that we have to make. This is what he's telling this new evangelical movement we have to make the case that there is a difference between the gospel and ideology. And I would say that is, if, if you want my opinion on the number one thing that we have to do to re-engage the uh, spiritual but not religious millennial generation, it is to prove that evangelical Christianity is not just another ideology that is beholden to uh, some sort of capitalist gestalt or whatever, whatever boogeyman they most greatly fear. But that the gospel is above ideology. This is what Carl Henry was contending for in, uh, in remaking The Modern Mind. After The Uneasy Conscience of Fundamentalism, Carl Henry then wrote another a follow-up book called The Protestant Dilemma. And in it, he looked back over Western philosophy and he said, what is the best case scenario in the whole history of Christianity that might be a, a precursor uh, for the truth of Christianity? And the answer, of course, uh, is Plato and Aristotle. So he goes back to Plato's Republic And uh, he says this, a similar longing to that of our culture is found at a high point in Plato's Republic. The great Greek thinker foreseeing that the prevailing moral instability would lead to the downfall of the nation urges his contemporaries to become explicit about the spiritual moral universe. Plato then proposes an outline for an ideal state in which, uh, It will function with reference to an eternal good, an eternal truth, and an eternal beauty. At this point, a very practical question arises. How are the multitudes to be prevailed upon to undertake the change from the old world in order to receive the new? What compelling sanction can be appealed to that people who will dedicate themselves to their proper roles in society? So what's he saying? He's saying, here's, Plato understands that Greek culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And we have to recover these eternal, transcendent, moral, and spiritual truths. And we have to make this appeal to frame this against uh, a theistic worldview of some sort, Plato says. But at a key point... Socrates says to his interlocutors um, that this is all one grand lie. But what we've got to do is convince people that the lie is true, that there really is this theistic moral framework that we should all live our lives by. And Henry says, here is the high watermark of Greek philosophy saying that at the end of the day, this is all just one grand deceit. So even there, we see the failure of the unregenerate mind. He says, for all of its brilliance, there is no more pathetic moment in Plato's Republic. For here, Plato who would have been the last to concede that an eternal spiritual moral realm was merely a postulation of his own mind, would nonetheless ride the conviction into the hearts of the multitudes by anchoring it to pure mythology. Unquote. Justin Martyr, Origen, Clement of Alexandria all thought that that Plato was the was a, was a precursor to to uh, the logos to to Christ and yet a contemporary theorist like a slavoj zizek would look at this and say this is exactly what western philosophy is all about it's all the attempt to try to deceive the masses into believing one grand lie it's all ideology it's all mythology For Henry, the number one goal is to show that biblical theism is actually rooted in uh, the search for philosophical truth. That it is actually real, that there actually is truly a meaning behind history. And this is why Henry thought that really understanding the influence of Hegelian philosophy was so necessary to our time because basically what Hegel said is that every era has this makes this attempt to say that history actually means something that it is actually going somewhere where at the end of the day a true Hegelian would say these are all uh, pathetic mythological attempts to sway the masses to a particular Uh, ideology. Our Our only play, Carl Henry would say, is to send our pastors and our teachers and our seminarians and our missionaries and our evangelists back to the philosophical sources to be able to explain this in our contemporary society. And I think that in so doing, he was echoing something that C.S. Lewis actually said in an interview with Time magazine, that I think is quite pointed. I think we are now back at this point in our time and in our culture. Lewis said Christians and pagans have more in common with one another than Christians have in common with the postmodern mind. So Interestingly enough, sometimes what we have done in, in our own um, apologetics is that we will try to argue on exactly, precisely the same ground as the atheist materialist philosophers. Rather than trying to re-enchant the imagination of people that might be open to biblical theism, to something that is beyond uh, a, a cold, rationalistic, atheist, materialist universe. And so that was, uh, that was Henry's goal. And, and let me tell you something, and, and here I'm going to apply this to our, our own situation right now. Uh, and, and this is actually something I would like to have some conversation with. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it into the home stretch here. But I'm going to throw a little hand grenade out here on the floor. Last night I talked about Kanye. Right now I'm going to talk about Trump. Um, in the very first volume of Carl F.H. Henry's God, Revelation, and Authority, he warns the church to read carefully and closely the writings of Marshall McLuhan. Because if you do not understand Marshall McLuhan, you will, have, you will not be in a position to be um, a, a, a faithful evangelist in this coming age. Now, why is Marshall McLuhan, why, why does he stick in Carl Henry's claw, craw? And uh, Carl Henry's bringing Malcolm Muggridge to his defense. What, what Henry recognized... Is that Marshall McLuhan was talking signaling the end of the logical propositional word in terms of helping people to understand what is good and what is bad mcLuhan 's central thesis was "The medium is the message and by the way, the uh, the publisher when it was first published that the title of the book was the uh, accidentally was the medium is the massage and McLuhan said I like that even better (laughs) McLuhan's point was that in this new era of television it which is a cool medium not a hot medium logical propositional thought doesn't matter anymore all that matters is the image and so I have been trying to tell my friends in the, in the world of political punditry, they're all pulling their hair out trying to explain the Trump phenomenon. And I'm not saying that there isn't, there, isn't, there aren't things that we can say in explanation for it. But of all the things you might want to say about angry voters and all of that, what Trump... Um, represents is the, the, the final chickens coming home to roost on Marshall McLuhan's thesis. The medium is the message. It has nothing to do fundamentally with what he says. The fact that people have sat at home and seen his image on TV is enough. McLuhan said a perfect example of the medium is the message is the light bulb, Right? It creates an environment around it and people can decide what the environment is for themselves. The light bulb has no content. It doesn't tell us how to live. It doesn't tell us what to do. It just casts light so we can create our own environments around it. That is what's happening right now with Trump. But unfortunately, uh, you know, let's just put it gently. Uh, God, revelation, and authority was hardly a bestseller. Uh, It was no late great planet Earth. And uh, people didn't heed Henry's warnings to understand uh, McLuhan. And so here we are struggling to understand how it is that that our very earnest proposals and uh, defenses of why evangelical voters should not vote for somebody like Trump get just completely ignored. What we don't realize, and this is something that we can talk about in the Q&A, is that um, when the producers at Fox News and CNN and NBC put somebody on television, they don't really care what they say. What they do is they turn off the sound. And if they can get people to sit in front of that television for more than 30 seconds, a couple of minutes, they get on the air, right? The medium is the message. Now that creates a huge challenge for us in, in our time. But it all goes back to this fountainhead of knowing how culture is created, beginning with high culture, beginning with ideation, and then, as Berger says, with socialization, which is common culture, which is in the worlds of business and in the worlds of government, and then it eventually filters down to pop culture, which, uh, as we all know, is what rules the day. People don't know who played in the Super Bowl. They do know that Coldplay, Beyonce, and Bruno Mars played at halftime. So, where do, we, where do we go from here? What I loved about Carl Henry, and when you look at God, revelation, and authority, here is someone who understood two things. One, he is someone who's reading deeply uh, in in uh, the philosophers of, of his day. He's reading Heidegger. He's reading Gadamer. And he is uh, saying no to the things you cannot say no to, or cannot say yes to. And he's saying yes to the ideas that are good. So he's a very subtle, integrative thinker. But then finally, uh, and I think most importantly, we have to remember that Carl Henry was someone who went to Yale's campus to debate Yale scholars. He didn't ask them to come to our home turf. He went to their home turf. He went to debate Hans Frey at Yale. He wanted to engage at the highest levels. And he understood that by doing that, that gave a platform for sharing the good news and the gospel to a new generation of people who are considering the historic truth claims of, uh, of Christianity. So with that in mind, um, let me draw this to a close and uh, since this is uh, uh, maybe a little more academic group than than we had last night, comments, thoughts, questions, uh, interrogations, additions, I'll, I'll turn, turn the floor back over to you. And maybe we have, a, I don't know, I guess we don't need a, a microphone here. The, the, room is, the room is small enough. But if you have something that you want to say, raise your hand. Just to let folks know, we do recognize of you may need to leave right now, so this is a good time. We'll just go for five, five more minutes. I won't, I won't detain you much longer.
1: Yes. Thank you
2: so much for drawing attention to McLuhan mm-hmm. um, and Postman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anyone in, in currently writing in evangelical circles that would be a, you know, a, a biblical version of a McLuhan, someone approaching, using his methodology with an evangelical mindset? The closest
0: person that I could point you to is David Dark. Yeah. Um, uh, who's a friend of mine? I would check out his new book. Life's too short to pretend you're not religious. Um, and I, I worked some with David on on while he was writing that that book. Uh, and I pointed him to people like Jaron Lanier, who's uh, uh, you know uh, a a philosopher but also a leading technologist. Um, and those are the kinds of people that uh, we ought to be reading right now. So I would say. David Dark's probably the the closest one, but at the sort of at the level of high academics, you know, in terms of like writing at the theoretical level, um, I'm I'm a bit at a loss to say who those people might be, because if if I can if I can uh, exhibit my frustrations a little bit. Uh, and I say this in the book, I define evangelicalism as anything you can do, we can do later. We can do anything later than you. So just at the point that the rest of the academy is thrown French phenomenology down the bucket, that's when it's all hot to talk about, you know, um, <laughs> you know, Marlou ponty Now all of a sudden he's super cool, you know, like... 40 years after, you know, that was a thing, you know. So I'm just bracing myself for, you know, in about 20 years, you know, I guess evangelical scholars, if there are any left, will be all, you know, trying to reappropriate Judith Butler. I, I don't know, but um, I, I think that maybe that, that's something for you all to consider uh, here. But I do think media studies is something we have not done very well. Um, there have been people like Bill Romanowski and others that, that have written this, but I think we await that kind of signature theoretical book, so maybe you should write that. Other questions, thoughts? Yes. Oops.
2: This is just a, a personal uh, encounter that I had with uh, Carl F.H. Henry. Um, 40 years ago, they let students teach Hebrew at Trinity. Mm. And I was one, and my class was in the classroom right before Carl H. Henry came in. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of this is just to show as a as a teacher and encouraging students, uh, he, he said to me, he said, well, now, if I have some problems on Hebrew, is it okay if I ask you?
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you
2: know, he would... Have better sense than to you know rely on, totally on anything I, I said but but just saying that to somebody like me was something that just lifted me up you know it sort of made my life almost wow uh, I and, love that story and just show and again it's his modesty, you know who he was because this was you know it was forty years ago and he was he was really you know at, way up there, and I was you know, a student. and But to say that to me shows his modesty, but also his encouragement in a way that is still never forgot.
0: You know, I, I want to say two things, and thank you for telling that story. Um, I need to tell Paul House this story because, you know, one of, the, one of his criticisms of Carl Henry and Millard Erickson is that they did not know Hebrew, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm so glad to know that at least he at least recognized that he didn't know uh, enough, enough Hebrew. But this makes a, a deeper point, and um, here is where I want to kind of go back to my theme from last night about Bring on the Robots, um, I think that there's some really interesting opportunities that are going to come up for theological education and for evangelical scholarship with the advent of things like the Oculus Rift virtual technology um, possibilities where uh, you can really truly have collaborative high-level evangelical scholarship, all right? Uh, with the best people from institutions and 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 be in a simulated environment with one another, so that before you hit send on an article, or on um, uh, or a book, or even a talk, that you would be able to liaise with people that are you know expert in in the field, and right now, you know we. Email is the absolute worst technology of all time. I hate it. Uh, but but now you, you can think about someone like a Carl Henry who would be asking those questions as they came up in, in his mind. Um, and so thank you for that story. I'm going to hide that one in my heart. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah, Edgar.
1: You, you talk about... High culture mm-hmm. today we hear evangelicals saying about engaging culture. sometimes sounds naive and kind of just doing culture based on kind of a nostalgic of going back to the deep south when things are well, comfortable and nice mm-hmm. so but when when, when, I, when you see people like in high culture and they hear evangelical engaging culture, so to speak in quote. Mm-hmm. First, I feel like they don't listen, those evangelicals. And when they don't listen, they don't care about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it. I mean, that's honest. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's how people in New York, Washington, Boston, they feel about it. Mm -hmm. So who would you say is an example of someone engaging culture at that level, Mm -hmm. doing it well? Because, for example, it seems to me that we as, as the church has never been good producing people like that mm-hmm. when we think about C.S. Lewis well he became Christian as an adult even Augustine so any thought on that?
0: Well I, I do think that um, I do think you're, you're spot on in your analysis I just want to go back and point out that um, it wasn't always this way I mean when Christianity today came out it was taken seriously by the new york times like they, they the new york times recognized it as uh having intellectual gravitas and as a legitimate counterpart or countervoice to um the uh, uh the christian the christian century um, the original goal of that neo-evangelical generation like Henry and like E.J. Carnell and like Millard Erickson was to engage at the highest uh, levels, and, and they did. Like I pointed out, Henry was, w- would, would uh, engage with ideas that he disagreed with on the campus. I will give you a good example of someone that does this at a very high level is Billy Abraham at SMU. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, William J. Abraham is the out, Albert Outler Chair of Systematic Theology at SMU. He does, uh, teaches a class with a radical left wing feminist, and they co teach it. Another example is Robbie George at Princeton University. Um, when Cornell West was still at Princeton, he would do a class with Cornell West. Um, now they kind of do a road show occasionally together. But I think that's the kind of thing that we need, which is to, to have, instead of old-timey debates, have, have those kinds of uh, conversations where, yes, you have radically opposing points of view, but that there's a mutual respect for the scholarship that's, uh, that's, being, that, that's being shared. Um, and so I think that that will inspire the next generation of, uh, and there are some, there are some thinkers uh, that, that are out there that are, uh, that are making their way in, into the academy that are doing that at a, at a very high level, like, uh, like a Christian sauner um, and others. So I think that they're out there and they're beginning to make their uh, way up through, uh, through the system. So I think there are some life signs out there. Thank you for that question, Edgar.